Now, if y'all don't do that when I'm preaching, we're going to get a lot of problems. No, that was not the same volume as that back there, Stuart. <clears throat> the, uh, the study of theology is one of the greatest things that we can accomplish um, as believers. Uh, that statement is not something I valued early on in my faith in Christ. And by God's grace, the Lord allowed me to uh, sit under preaching that reminded me that the study of God is the greatest study you can involve yourself in. Because one, He has revealed Himself to you, and He has manifested Himself and revealed His attributes and His characteristics, and none of us deserve that. And so for us to dive into a, a month-long study of the doctrine of the Holy Spirit is uh, not only a monumental task, but it is a praiseworthy task. Um, and I hope that you will glean great truth from it. A lot of it you will know and understand. Um, some of it will make you uncomfortable, and we uh, know that the Word does that to us. One of the things that you will notice and be reminded of is that going through a doctrinal systematic study of a, of a topic like the Holy Spirit is not the typical preaching that we do. We are expositional. We usually stay to one text. Um, but in this arena and in this environment, uh, we will look at multiple texts um, and verses throughout these studies in the next month. We will provide those on the screen for you. Um, that doesn't mean you shouldn't bring your Bible. And we would encourage you to take notes. And let me just encourage you, and I don't think I've even ever told you this, but um, on our website, when you click our sermons, the manuscript sermons that I preach are always there at the bottom. So I will give you a long list of things, and I will... Uh, and, and if you miss that and you're trying to frantically write it, I didn't even put a lot of those lists up on the screen because I know that if you're trying to, that type A personality where you have to get every uh, bullet point and you miss them, then you're thinking about that the rest of the time I'm preaching and that we can't have any of that, okay? So, um, but those lists and things will be um, on the manuscript and we will do a better job of getting Adams and Stewart's on that as well just so we can always have transparency with what we're saying and such. Um, <clears throat> the Holy Spirit. We did not by any uh, purposeful strategy choose to study the Holy Spirit in the month of October when there's so much talk about ghosts and goblins and spirits. So don't, <laughs> don't, get, us, uh, don't get us wrong there. But uh, we do want to uh, spend a time each year focusing on a doctrine, focusing on an idea um, that we dive deeper into as a church. And we honestly got away from that. Um, COVID and things of that nature got us uh, sidetracked, and so we are thankful to be back and, and studying these things. So, uh, the person and work of the Spirit of God, part one, will be this week. Uh, the next week will be part two. Uh, here's just a little overview. Uh, next week, we're going to look at the person of the Holy Spirit um, today, as well as uh, looking at his relationship in the Godhead 
and part, being part of the Trinity. And then next week we'll look at kind of the ways that his work is uh, effective in applying what Christ accomplished at redemption, okay? So most particularly the work of redemption that is applied to believers by the Holy Spirit and the, the effects of the sealing of the Holy Spirit, which is the great doctrine that we are preserved until the end, okay? So that's kind of the preview. And then week three, I got this backwards. The elders reminded me. Um, week three is going to be uh, Adam, and he's going to, right? And he's going to talk about our relationships and the way the Holy Spirit works as we interrelate with one another, okay? Then Pastor Stewart is going to preach on our relationship with the Holy Spirit and how that sanctification and uh, Holy Spirit process plays out. And then lastly, week five, the end of October, we, we will have Casey Kidd in our missionary from Peru. And we've partnered with him for many years. Him and his sweet wife, Julie, will be here. And he will preach to us on the Holy Spirit in the work of reaching the lost um, in the world. So those are kind of, that's kind of the layout. We hope that you'll be a part of all those. If you miss one, by God's grace, it will be recorded. 58% of people who identify as Christians in the world do not believe that the Holy Spirit is real. 58% of people, according to Cultural Research Center at Arizona Christian University, a study done in 2021. Now, if we are going to understand who God is, we cannot just understand God as Father and God as Son. We also have to understand Him as God, the Holy Spirit. That statistic came from Costi Hinn in his book, Knowing the Spirit, and he concludes that because of such a ignorance in knowing fully about God as Father, Son, and Spirit, believing they are all God and believing that they are all active in our lives, um, because of that, nearly 70%, he says, of U.S. adults self-identify as Christians and yet express a deeper reliance on their feelings, experiences, family, and friends instead of the Bible. Their moral guidance, he says, comes from somewhere other than the origin of all morality, and that is God. As we begin to study the Holy Spirit, we will come to understand and know more fully who He is so that we will think rightly about God and not wrongly. In the third century AD, as the church in its infant stage was growing and maturing, Satan did everything in his power to put a stamp of error and disunity as he did from the beginning. And with the growing of the church and the growing and spreading of the gospel, his attacks came oftentimes with heresy regarding the doctrines of God. One particular heretic's name was Sibelius, and Sibelius, or Sibelianism, was the belief that God manifested Himself through successive stages in history, meaning that in the Old Testament, God the Father represented Himself as Father, 
But then he represented himself as the Son during the time of Christ. And then finally he represented himself as the Holy Spirit in three separate stages, not in one God and three persons. Therefore, Sabellianism, or as we know it commonly today, modalism, was a heresy that was fought against by the church, thankfully for guys like Athanasius and others, who picked up on a misunderstanding of the doctrine of God and were willing to stand up and fight against the truth that God is one in essence and being and yet manifests himself in three persons. Not God the Father at one point and then later God the Son and then later God the Holy Spirit, but God always Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And that's important. We think, why is that important, Pastor? Because you could be the next heretic. That's why. Because you could be the one spreading doctrine and truth across the Christian landscape that is untrue and lead people astray. And so the truth of the matter is, is that God calls us to worship Him in spirit and in truth. Not spirit and in your interpretation, spirit and in the truth of how He's revealed Himself. And so it is very important, very important for us to understand Scripture and know Him and teach Him and worship Him as He ought to be taught and worshipped. So what we're going to do in a... um, I'm going to do my best in making this more of preaching and less scholastically teaching, but to do an overview of the Holy Spirit, it's just really hard to do that. So please bear with me. I hope you'll take notes. Uh, First of all, today we want to look at uh, the Holy Spirit is present in eternity and throughout history. question I want to begin by asking you is, have you really ever studied the Holy Spirit and His activity throughout the whole Bible? You know, oftentimes when the loudest voice is in the room, we focus on the loudest voice. And when it comes to the Holy Spirit, the loudest voice is always going to be during what? The early church. At Pentecost, right? That's when we heard the Holy Spirit or saw the Holy Spirit the most active. And because of that, we oftentimes don't think of the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament, right? And sometimes because of the things that have happened in uh, erroneous and, and, and false settings in the church through history after the New Testament and early church, we oftentimes stay away from the idea of talking about and thinking about the Holy Spirit from the early church to today because there's been such craziness and chaos that we don't want to think about what has the Holy Spirit really been doing. So we focus on Pentecost and we focus on those things. But the truth is, the Holy Spirit, first of all, has existed throughout all eternity before creation because He is the third person of the Trinity or the Godhead. And therefore, He deserves to be recognized as such. And so let's look at a couple passages this, um, this afternoon in thinking about the Spirit in history At the very beginning of the Bible, the second verse of the Bible, the first says, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. And in the second verse it says, 
Referring to the Holy Spirit, the earth was formless and void, and darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was moving over the surface of the waters. God is already present at creation when the story of creation begins. Chapter 1, verse 1 really is a summary of what is going to happen in the beginning, God created. God created things out of nothing, and immediately the third person of the Trinity, the Spirit of God, is identified as that agent of creation. The word um, hovering or moving over the surface of the waters is a difficult translation because really that word in its root form really talks about uh, a sense of, of, of sustaining that which is being created. Um, one commentator says that it, it refers to an Adam and Shauna can, ref, would, can recognize this more than most of us, uh, a hen that, that, that lays upon her eggs and protects them and is sustaining them until the time that they are hatched, right? The, some, some translations even call it brooding over the waters. This, this, this sense in which creation is in, is in activity and the, the Holy Spirit in its full, in His full power and might is active in that creation, brooding or sustaining that which is created. We see verses in uh, the book of Psalms, like Psalm 104, that remind us that not only is the Spirit involved in creation of, of human beings, but just generally there is a sense in which nature itself is dependent upon the very act of creation and what God has done through the power of the Spirit. Psalm 104 reminds us of that. The whole psalm is about the dependence of nature and creation upon God. And in verse 27 through 30, it says this, They all wait for you to give them their food in due season. You give to them. They gather it up. You open their hand. They are satisfied with good. You hid your face. They are dismayed. You take away their spirit. They expire and return to their dust. You send forth your spirit. They are created and you renew the face of the ground. The Spirit is active in that work at the history's apex and beginning, or excuse me, at the the culmination of, of history on this earth and in this world with the Spirit's power bringing about life. We say the word in Latin, ex nihilo, or nihilo, which is the, the bringing about of creation from nothing. And the Spirit was active in that, bringing about that life. But of course, we think also of the Spirit bringing about our lives, the life of man, right? In chapter 1 of Genesis, verse 26, in the plural form, God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness and let them rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over the cattle and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. And... In, in a parallel verse in Genesis 2, 7, which is a greater description, the Bible says that when God was creating man, He literally formed man from the dust of the ground, and the Bible says He breathed into him life. 
Well, that's no accident that that language, that poetic language is used because literally the word in Hebrew, ruach, is literally the word that means wind or breath and spirit. All these words culminate together. So when you see or hear the word breath in the Bible, like for example, the word of God is breathed out by God. It has this understanding of the Spirit's work and activity in all things that are created. So we could say then as Adam and Eve are created by God, it's the Spirit of God that is breathing life into him. Matter of fact, a parallel passage to that, I won't go to it, but it's Ezekiel chapter 36, where the dry bones are raised to new life, and the prophet Ezekiel has this vision of this army that are dead and dry bones, and the new life is given to these dry bones, and it's the Spirit of God that breathes new life into them. Because that's what the Spirit does. He creates, God creates through the agent of the Spirit, breathing life where there is deadness. Job said this in Job 33, verse 4, The Spirit of God has made me, and the breath of the Almighty gives me life. So not only is the Spirit involved at the beginning and the culmination of creation, but throughout history we see the Spirit at work. Now, it's interesting because we know and can understand that when Adam and Eve lived at the beginning with God, they fellowshiped with Him in perfect unity and harmony because they were sinless. They fellowshiped with God. They had relationship with God. Therefore, because God is Father, Son, and Spirit, that means that Adam and Eve had to have had fellowship with Father, Son, and Spirit. Three in one. Perfect unity and fellowship with the Spirit. But what happens in Genesis chapter 3 is that sin enters into the picture. And sin enters into the world through the corruption and the rebellion of Adam and Eve, our first parents. And what happens is, is that broken fellowship comes. Separation, the Bible says. Hostility and contention comes. So that now we understand that man cannot fellowship with Father, Son, and Spirit because sin and and rebellion dissatisfies and displeases and separates us from a holy God. So now the Bible tells us that because of that, we are in hostility with God. So as I was studying this week, I'd never seen this before. But in Genesis chapter 6, the, the narrative of the flood with Noah, God is looking upon mankind and He's seeing the progression of the growing uh, effects of sin in the world and God is displeased and He's regretful because man continually sins and rebels against Him. And in verse 3, the Lord says, My spirit will, will not contend with man forever, for he is mortal, his days will be 120 years. There, in that is a statement about God and man's relationship and a promise. The statement is, we are in contention 
with the Holy Spirit and the Son and the Father because of sin, but yet the promise is, my spirit will not contend with man forever. There's a hope there. There's a promise there. But because of sin and rebellion, which is displayed in the effects of Noah, of, of, the, of, the, of the world before the flood, we understand that that sin has led to contention and hostility before a holy God. This is interesting to me because in a world that wants to be fantasize and and dream about and experience these grand um, experiences in church settings where the Spirit is moving them to do crazy and chaotic and disorderly things, It's interesting to me the possibility that so many of these people do not know the true gospel. They do not understand the effects of sin and the the gift of salvation. They literally just want to have some uh, uh, emotional experience. And so the effects of that desire for an emotional experience is literally the creation of that emotional experience, not based upon the Spirit moving in them, Because their heart is still contentious with the Holy God. The Spirit does not dwell with them. The Spirit is in contention with them. So then what's happening that's leading them to barking like a dog and flopping on the ground like a fish on dry land? It's emotional acting is what it is. It's not real. It's not genuine. It's made up. Because the Spirit is in contention with man until Christ provides a way of restoration and hope and peace. But I digress. This contention between people and the Godhead because of sin destroys fellowship with God. Our sin offends His holiness. And yet, by God's mercy and grace, we continue to see the Spirit at work in God's people through history. I'll give you some examples where this is mentioned. For example, in Exodus 35, he fills those craftsmen, those men who God has appointed and set apart to build the tabernacle with Moses. These gifted and skilled men that were not just given talents, but they were literally, the Bible says, filled with the Holy Spirit so that they may mold and craft and make the beauty of the tabernacle a place where God's presence would dwell. A special place. God filled them with the Spirit to do such a thing. A supernatural event. In Numbers 11, he fills Moses and the 70 elders who help Moses as they lead the people of Israel accentuating and emphasizing the fact that God's people cannot lead, or God's leaders cannot lead God's people in their own strength and in their own power, but they must be filled with the Holy Spirit, which Brother Stewart's going to talk about to us, so that the Spirit is leading us, so that Christ is the head and the authority of the church. We're not just leading it directions that we want to go. Throughout the book of Judges, we see examples where the judges were filled with the Holy Spirit so they could lead Israel. King David and and King Saul are both stated in 1 Samuel 16 that they're filled with the Holy Spirit 
And in that one chapter, we see that Saul was filled with the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit leaves King Saul and now falls upon King David as the, 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 the transition of authority and leadership of Israel transfers hands. And then in the New Testament, in 2 Peter 1, we're told that the Holy Spirit fills and leads the prophets of old. Therefore, knowing that all the prophets and priests that were the voices of God and, and the leaders of God were given the Holy Spirit so that they may lead well. And then finally, one I think uh, verse of, of great emphasis is Isaiah 61. Isaiah 61.1 is one of the well-known passages, messianic prophecies, uh, speaking of the one who would, be, who would come, the one who would bring about redemption, the one who would bring about salvation for God's people. And the way in which Isaiah the prophet is led by the Holy Spirit to prophesy about this Messiah who would come, who we now know as Jesus Christ, the very first thing that is stated about the Messiah is that you will know it's the Messiah because the Spirit of the Lord of God is upon him. That he was anointed by that Spirit to bring good news to the afflicted. This is the very sign and, and, and understanding that, that points us to Christ. The very apex and, and important emphasis that we see at the very baptism of Jesus that we'll get to in just a minute. Like literally Isaiah 61 is ringing in the heads of the Jews at the water of Jordan where Jesus is baptized. Why? Because the Messiah was promised to receive the Holy Spirit that would fall upon Him. And that's exactly what happened at the baptism of Jesus. But before we get there, let's think back to the Holy Spirit's involvement in the Messiah, the Son of God. In Luke chapter 1, he fills John the Baptist, the forerunner of Christ, who will herald the coming of Jesus, who will herald the coming of the Messiah. We know that the Holy Spirit is the agent in which Jesus is conceived in the womb of Mary. He leads others to prophesy of Jesus as fulfilling the messianic promises in Luke chapter 2. In Matthew chapter 3, as I just spoke, the Holy Spirit reveals Himself by descending upon the Lord Jesus in the baptismal waters of the river, signifying that He is fulfilling the promise of the Messiah. In Matthew chapter 4, he leads Jesus to be tempted in the wilderness by the devil. The refining process that Jesus goes through by fasting 40 days and going into the wilderness and fulfilling what Israel could not fulfill by being obedient to, to the Lord and obeying Him in every way. The Spirit led Him to such a place. We see that the Spirit is present in Jesus casting out demons in Matthew 12. Jesus tells us in His earthly ministry that the Spirit would come, that once He dies and is buried and resurrects from the dead and ascends to heaven, the Holy Spirit would come upon people, His people, which, which is exactly what happens at Pentecost in the early church as the Holy Spirit comes and indwells believers and empowers them for ministry. 
And this is exactly the promise that was given. The promise that the Holy Spirit would come. And He would come in a unique and a different way in history than He had been before. Because when we think back to how I began, the the Holy Spirit's activity in creation had to be different when sin entered into the world. There had to be a problem. There had to be some difference, some way in which the Holy Spirit's activity was lessened because we have to see the effects of sin in the world. And so when sin's corruption enters, the activity of the Spirit is lessened, but then the promise of the Spirit comes again following Christ. In the new covenant, when Jesus Christ who ratifies that covenant and fulfills that covenant, when He comes and He gives His life and He dies upon the cross and He resurrects from the grave, He inaugurates a new covenant which was also prophesied to bring about great implications with the Spirit. Be reminded of Ezekiel chapter 36. The great promise of the new covenant and how that new covenant would bring about different effects of the Holy Spirit in this time of history. He says, I will give you a new heart. I will put a new spirit within you and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and I will give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes. You will be careful to observe my ordinances. You will live in the land that I gave your forefathers so that you will be my people and I will be your God. This passage in Ezekiel is the foundational prophecy referring to our regeneration. And how are we regenerated? How are we made new in Christ? We are made new when the Spirit of God gives us new life. He gives us new life. And in that new life, the Bible promises that the Spirit will dwell with my people. Not come and go. Not be here and there, but will dwell with my people. A a continual presence of the Holy Spirit. So much so that Paul calls us the temple of the Holy Spirit. That literally He resides within us. If we trust in Christ, if we are believers in Jesus' name alone for salvation, then we are the very dwelling place of the Holy Spirit. That's very different. Why? Because what Christ accomplishes at redemption is that He is restoring what was broken at the fall of man. Once again, Jesus is bringing back and restored back to what we had in Adam, but even better in Christ. We are given the Spirit for relationship because of the relationship with the Son, which grants us relationship to the Father. That's what Jesus Christ accomplishes. That's what was prophesied in Ezekiel thanks to the power of the Holy Spirit bringing it upon us. And because the Holy Spirit is God, and because He is eternal, the Holy Spirit is not discarded when Christ returns. He is eternal, therefore He will dwell with us in heaven. He's not some uh, tool that we need on this earth and, and no longer will we need Him. But instead we see in prophecies like Joel chapter 2 that when the coming day of the Lord, which 
which I believe points to the future when God's wrath is poured upon unbelievers, that the Spirit's involvement in that process will also come to be and we will dwell with Father, Son, and Spirit for all eternity. That is a glimpse of the history of the Holy Spirit in our history. Number two. Did y'all write all that down, by the way? Shame on y'all. Number two, he is a person and not a force. He is a person and not a force. It's important for us to not fall into this misconception that the Spirit is just an it. That it's an impersonal force that acts upon uh, Christians. You guys know that I'm a big Star Wars fan. So our young people can connect with me on this. Probably take more notes about this than anything else I've said. I like it because I like the fictional plot. I like the character development. I like the action. I'm a science fiction guy. And George Lucas, the creator of that Star Wars world, drew a lot of his ideas about that film from different movies in the 60s. This was when he was young and, and going through film school and such. And one unknown film to, him, to most of us had a profound impact on his creative style and the Star Wars universe. And from one of the, this one film came the idea of the so-called force. And if you're a Star Wars, if you watched any of the movies, you understand that the force was something that connects living beings together, but it was impersonal. It was merely the, the bridge between one living being and one created thing and another. It had no name other than the force. But it connected them. It was, as it says in the film, an energy field that connects all living things. Interestingly, though, the writers of that indie film that inspired George Lucas commented on this idea. When it was discovered or when, it, when they were interviewed, why, why did you have these things in your film that so influenced Star Wars? This is what they said. He says, many people, they said, feel that it is in the contemplation of nature and in the communication with other living things, they become aware of some kind of force or something behind this apparent mask which we see in front of us and they call it God, end quote. So subconsciously, because they could not, these writers could not identify God as who He is, they used the term force. This impersonal thing. They're thinking of God, which we would even say is the Holy Spirit, but they can't give a name for that because they clearly don't understand the revelation of God. But this undiscovered reality of God's existence led to such an idea called the force. And listen, it affects how we think about the Holy Spirit. We don't think about, oh, those are just fun movies my kids watch. No, they define us if we don't understand that they're fictional ideas that could distort our true understanding that the Holy Spirit is not an impersonal force. He is God. And He is personal. 
And it's important for us in our understanding of the Holy Spirit to know His personality. That He is a personal God. So much so that the Scripture reveals this to us. That in His personal activity, He reflects personal activity that we would have with one another. So that as God is revealing Himself in Father, Son, and Spirit, we are reminded that even the Spirit Himself is revealed with personal and not impersonal activity. For example, here's another list. The Bible tells us He's the Comforter and the Helper. In John 14 through 16, chapters 14 through 16. The Bible tells us, we studied in 1 Corinthians 2, that the, the Holy Spirit is given wisdom. He knows. He understands and searches the depths of God. He indwells and fills people. He teaches us. He speaks. He gives gifts. He can be grieved and quenched. He can be blasphemed. He confirms our salvation. He convicts us and judges us. He even helps us pray. These are all personal attributes. Personal meaning He relates to us. And He relates to us in our Christian lives because as God, He has revealed Himself as the third person of the Trinity. And this should be important for us. Important for us not to think of Him like the generations before us in the King James Version of the Bible that call Him the Holy Ghost. And ghosts are sometimes scary and we fear ghosts not out of sense of reverence but out of sense of terror. That's what I thought as a kid. I'm supposed to worship a holy ghost? Like, I grew up in the Star Wars universe. I grew up in the Ghostbusters universe. Right? I mean, this is the things that I thought of as a kid when I'm being told that the third person of the Trinity is the Holy Ghost. But as the Holy Spirit, He desires and deserves our worship. So, He is a person and not a force because He acts personally. Also importantly, He is revealed as a He. He has personal pronouns. We like to talk about personal pronouns in these times of life, the society that we live in today. So it's important for us to understand the masculine personal pronouns of the Holy Spirit. They are only masculine. You'll see in the feminist agenda today that, that God is now a woman in their mind. Which we should maybe celebrate that they're even acknowledging that God exists, even though they have gotten God completely wrong. John chapter 16, which I had uh, Jeremy read for us this afternoon. Notice the personal pronouns of the Holy Spirit. Maybe like, Pastor, why are we talking about English grammar? I'll tell you why. Because in the study of the original languages, pronouns are important because they help us identify the gender of someone. He said this, she said this. Well, here's something interesting. The word spirit in the Greek language is neuter. It's not male or female. So, there are cases being made that, that the Holy Spirit isn't it because when the Spirit is mentioned, it's a neutered word. 
in the grammar. But in God's wisdom, He didn't leave it at that. So when John gives us his gospel, Jesus makes sure through the power of the Holy Spirit and the, and the words of Christ that we understand that the Spirit is not neuter. He is a male, which gives him person and personhood, which we see in John chapter 16. Look at with me, verse 7 and 8. I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away, for if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. Now, he could literally continue to speak about the Holy Spirit as the helper. But instead, if I go, he says, I will send him to you. And he, when he comes, will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Keep going down, verse 13. But when he, the Spirit comes, Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth, for he will not speak on his own initiative, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will disclose to you what is to come. He will glorify me, for he will take of mine, and will disclose it to you. All these things that the Father has are mine, therefore I said that he takes of mine, and will disclose it to you. Personal pronouns are important. They help us understand that the Spirit is masculine, that the Spirit is a person, and therefore we celebrate the personal attributes of God, that He is God in the flesh, Jesus, God in the Spirit, and God the Father. We understand these as one God in three persons, and in that Godhead we understand them to be one essence but distinct persons. That's important for us. If we're going to understand theology, if we're going to understand God, then we understand the distinctiveness of the personhood of God is important. Here's what I mean. The Father did not die on the cross. You can't say that. The Father nor the Spirit died upon the cross. Now that seems simple to us until you begin talking about God and you hear these things in people's speech because they don't think rightly about the revelation of God. So he is not a force, he's a person. And I think thirdly we need to understand that he is the distinct or he is a distinct person of the Godhead, as I said. Talking back at the beginning about Sibelius and modalism and other heretics in the, in the Bible like, or in history like Arius and Arianism, which you can research later, there has constantly been attacks from, from heretics about the understanding and the revelation of God and who he is. Arius said that Christ was not God. Sibelius said that Father, Son, and Spirit, as I said, was re- revealing Himself in different phases of life successive, or history successively. But the Bible teaches instead that each distinct person of the Godhead is equally God. Not a part of God, but equally, fully God.
And this is important for us to think of the Holy Spirit as God. The Holy Spirit as needing to be worshipped. The Son needing to be worshipped. The Father needing to be worshipped. The Holy Spirit needing to be worshipped. Going back to John 16, which is where you should have just been. Notice the succession of equality, the display of equality in John 16, verses 15 through 16. All things the Father said, uh, that the Father has, Jesus says, are mine. So the Father and the Son possess equally. Therefore, he says, I said that he takes of mine, the Holy Spirit, takes of mine, which is Jesus, and will disclose it to you. A little while and you will no longer see me, and again, a little while and you will see me. Note the emphasis that he, the Spirit, takes of the Son's possessions, all that the Father has given him, belong to the Son, the knowledge, the truth, the authority, And the Holy Spirit takes what belongs to the Father and the Son, and they equally, with unity, possess and deliver with distinctiveness. So in that statement, which is profound, there is unity and there's distinctiveness. We are seeing different roles being carried out, and yet equality being communicated. Here's another one, Matthew 28, 19. The great statement of the Great Commission. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. At the Great Commission, Jesus states that baptism should be observed in the name of the Father, Son, and Spirit. That is equally, equally being named and equally being worshipped And recognized why. Well, listen to this statement by John Calvin. He says, Paul connects these three, God, faith, and baptism, and reasons from the one to the other because there is one faith. And he infers that there is one God. And because there is one baptism, he infers that there is one faith. Therefore, if by baptism we are initiated into the one faith and the worship of one God, we must of necessity believe that he into whose name we are baptized is the true God. That's powerful. We don't just say you're baptized by the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit because that's a good Christian religious thing to do. We are acknowledging the one faith, the one Godhead, recognized in three persons, all worthy to be recognized and worshipped because they are God. And of course, their distinction falls into a couple categories that we will see through this study. Their distinctiveness first is recognized in the fact that the Bible tells us in that same passage in John 15, 26, that the Holy Spirit is sent and proceeds. He is sent by the Son and proceeds from the Father. 
That means He originates with the Father and He's sent by the Son. That doesn't mean He's created by the Father. He literally is with the Father and proceeds from the Father by the Son who is sending Him into the world when Christ comes or or leaves and ascends to be back with the Father. There's distinction there. Roles and purposes. And that distinctiveness is important for us as we look at their personhood and we understand their role and their function. In the same way, we see a subordination of the Spirit. In Galatians chapter 4, verse 6, we're told that because you are sons... I think I have this verse. Yep, there it is. Thank you, Jeremy. Because you are sons, God has sent forth the Spirit of His Son into our hearts. That the Holy Spirit, in a subordinate way, is being reflected as the Spirit of Christ Himself, even though He's the third person of the Godhead, showing us a proper role and distinctiveness and a submission, not of inferiority, but instead an act of submission to give praise and glory to the Son. In the same way we read earlier in John, that it's literally the the Father and the Son who will give the things that are needed to be said to the Spirit to deliver to us God's people. That is the role and distinctiveness and purpose of the Spirit to transmit what is given by the Father and the Son to God's people through the Spirit. And of course we understand that because He is the helper for the church. And if this study communicates anything, the rest of these weeks we will see the application of God sending, or the Holy Spirit as God being the helper for the church. John chapter 14, But the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and bring to remembrance all that I said to you. He is the helper for the church until Christ returns. His activity as the helper is keenly focused on our relationship with the Godhead, our activity and empowerment in the world, so that we might bring glory to the name of God into a lost world. Through that activity, He brings about the growth of the church through missions. And so we will look more intently and more purposefully in this activity of the Holy Spirit, most particularly in our salvation, in our sanctification, in our mission, and in finally our sealing. And so we want you to think rightly about the Holy Spirit. We want you to worship Him as He deserves to be worshipped. As God, the third person of the Trinity, who is active in all of history and deserves glory. Let's pray. Father, we praise you.